We've all had an ankle injury at some point, most of us experiencing the lower end of this spectrum, twisting our ankles during a run or a football game, or if you're me, running down the stairs to accept your third Amazon delivery of the day. But there's a wide spectrum of things to talk about here, from the dramatic open fracture dislocated ankle that paramedics need to be able to manage, to the more minor swollen ankle that we too need to assess and decide whether or not we're going to discharge them or send them in for an x-ray. So this month we're taking a look at our ankles, we're covering the management of open ankle fractures, how to decide when to x-ray and when not to, the correct management of sprains, and a bit of ankle anatomy. So if you think we could have packed any more into this episode, make sure you tail us. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Alex. And I'm Simon. And we don't have Josh this week. I think he's uh, off busy polishing his helicopter rotor blades or something <laughs> something of that nature. So you've just got the two of us and uh, for episode 30 this week we've decided to cover a really exciting topic, haven't we, uh, Simon? We're talking about ankle injury. Why, have, why are we talking about ankles this month? So, yeah, we're talking about ankle injuries because they are a common presentation to pre-hospital clinicians ranging from the significant open ankle fracture or closed fracture that's deformed and needs reduction all the way through to the minor injury that could probably self-convey. And we're going to try and cover the spectrum um, of those injuries this morning and the pre-hospital management of them. Excellent. Lots to discuss then. So let's get started. So the foot is a pretty intricate part of the body, uh, which consists of 26 bones, 33 joints, about 107 ligaments and 19 muscles uh, in each foot. And data that's collected over a 10-year period in a study by Jennison and Brinsden showed that ankle fractures were around the third most common type of fracture seen in UK hospitals after uh, hip and distal radius fractures, which were more common. The ankle itself is comprised of seven bones. That's the calcaneus, the talus, the cuboid, the navicular, and the medial, middle, and lateral cuneiforms. And I think when we are talking about injury to the ankle, one of the first things we need to have a a brief think about, as with most traumatic injury, is the mechanism. Mechanism of injury is really important because obviously if we have a high mechanism of injury, then we're going to need to think about other injuries that that come with it. During this episode, we want to stay focused. So we're not going to go down those lines too much apart from significant ankle injuries. So we're going to kind of assume that the rest of our primary survey is normal. But it is really important to be aware of. For example, if someone falls from height onto their heels and has a calcaneus fracture, then there is commonly associated lumbar, thoracic, and even cervical vertebral fractures as well. So just keep that in mind when you are working these patients up. Is there the possibility of other injuries associated with this? Yeah, I've actually seen that a couple of times. I've had people that have um, fallen through roofs and that sort of thing and and when you get there they say oh the the middle part of my back hurts a little bit but it's nothing too bad and then or actually both of both of my ankles really hurt and when you palpate 
around the heel and, and the calcaneus they said oh yeah that really hurts and that was a really big sort of hang on a minute and yeah they turned out to have uh, multiple lumbar spinal fractures so yeah it, you know when when we're talking about mechanism i know we in pre-hospital medicine we talk a lot about mechanism and high and low energy but there are just a couple of things to be aware of like that another one is a pilon fracture pilon is the french word for pestle as in like pestle and mortar and if you think of when you're grinding things up, that mechanism that the that the uh, the pestle smashes into the mortar, that's essentially the mechanism that causes a pilon fracture. They're, they're often found in high-energy mechanism RTCs, and they're seeing them more often now that RTCs are becoming more survivable. And a pilon fracture affects generally the distal tibia and often, not necessarily always, but often involves the distal head of the fibula as well. Not strictly considered an ankle injury, but when we're talking about mechanism, if you've had a high impact high energy impact to the base of the foot that can yeah that can transfer energy all the way right up into the spine it can it can smash uh, smash the lower parts of the legs together so so mechanism is as as always in trauma is um is definitely something to be considered so alex that leads us nicely into one of the most critical things that we're going to see which is that of the obviously fractured deformed and maybe even open ankle injury that is significant limb trauma yeah so when we say sort of gross deformity it's it's an ankle that you look at and you go that's not the right shape yeah absolutely it's the kind of picture that i've put on paramedicate before and been banned on my account because it's so grossly deformed they they obviously don't like it as opposed to uh, an ankle that is bruised and swollen uh, or extremely swollen which can be a fracture but also could be a significant ligamentous injury so these are the the injuries that are high mechanism although not always high mechanism i, I have had seen people with these that have tripped over over their dog which would seem like relatively low mechanism but obviously if you just catch the foot in the wrong way and then yeah they have probably complete fracture dislocation of the the ankle joint uh, and the foot ends up either facing kind of an inverted or, or um, everted direction that is likely going to cause some degree of neurovascular compromise Let's think about that. So, so assuming we've done our primary survey and we have an isolated, nasty ankle fracture dislocation that we are looking at, things that we need to know immediately about the patient, we're good, we need to know a brief history of what happened whilst we're starting to, to do some management for the ankle. But we also need to get a brief past medical history, medication history and allergies just briefly because we are going to need to analgese these patients urgently. And I think this is a bit of a sticking point in pre-hospital care for kind of paramedic level or, or lower. You know, I mean, it's easy for me because I've got access to ketamine, to penthrox, to hematoma blocks, to all sorts of stuff that we can use to do this. But pre-hospitally, our formulary on an ambulance becomes more restricted so alex what kind of combinations and things do you use in various patients what have you used before so it it is really dependent on your service isn't it you know some some services will carry penthrox so I, I think a lot in the uk do now the service that i 
personally work for do not currently carry Penthrox, so that does slightly reduce the formulary that we have available. I tend to find that a combination of Entonox and morphine is is certainly a good place to start. But I think with a with a patient who has got a grossly deformed ankle now, there, I suppose there's two schools of thought. You can look at this and say, this is just an ankle. It's not a major trauma in the sense of activating a major trauma uh, cascade and procedure. However, it is still limb critical and actually it, it could be life-changing. So I, I think there's a real need here for early activation of critical care intervention because although this isn't a patient who is peri-arrest, for example, you know, critical care teams can bring advanced analgesia depending on the um who makes up that team there may be options for procedural sedation nerve blocks all sorts of those those other options that you would have in hospital so i think for a patient who has got a really obvious grossly deformed fracture i think early activation of additional assets is is really important and certainly some consideration of your transport um uh distances so what you're saying then alex is that we actually do need josh for this podcast I wouldn't say need. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I think. So we do. You know, <laughs> oh, bless him. We miss him, really. There you go, Josh. So you can come along and give your um, additional medication, which, no, I completely agree. If you have access to extended scope practice, critical care, um, get them running early if you've got a distance to hospital so that we can um, get some decent analgesia and maybe procedural sedation if this fracture is likely going to need reduction. That's the best plan. And I think another really important aspect pre-hospitally is splinting. Now, splinting is not just a form of packaging, and I, I certainly have seen in the past fractures treated in the sense of, right, well, we give some pain relief and then as part of the packaging for the patient, we we splint them. It's re- I think it's really uh, important to remember that splinting in and of itself is a form of analgesia, essentially. When, when properly splinted, you're reducing suffering, you're reducing the amount of pain that the patient is in, reducing further injury, all that, all that good stuff. So the decision really when you're looking at any fracture, but particularly the gross deformity fractures, is how far do I have to go? How much pain is the patient in? And how much pain is the patient going to be in when we start to move? And do I need to splint this in situ or does this need reduction? And I think, Simon, you're probably the best of the two of us. You're probably the best person to talk to us about those fractures that will need reduction and um, how we're going to spot those. So I know this is a bit of a debated topic because obviously, I mean, I don't know about you, but I wasn't taught how to reduce dislocations or fractures in my undergraduate training. That being said, it is mentioned in Jao Kalkin as something that we should be doing if there is neurovascular compromise with a distance to hospital. Now, it doesn't specify what that distance is. Um, So what do you think in terms of distance then you know i I realize that is a very broad and open question but to me i I suppose we have to think about the amount of time that the tissue is going to be compromised and so so what do we think is a sort of acceptable transport distance 
So I would say if you are really close to an A&E, so five to 10 minutes, it might be acceptable to load and go, uh, split it in position and pre-alert. That being said, nowadays with ramping outside of hospital, you know, you may not be able to offload when you first get there. So this still might be an issue and it may actually be better to reduce it at scene. And it's actually not as difficult as, as people worry about i feel basically all we're trying to do and again advocated by jail calc is return the limb to its normal alignment so this often just requires uh some gentle traction these these injuries are usually pretty unstable so they do traction back relatively simple so once you've analgesed your patient as best as you you have available with with whatever medications you have then just applying some gentle traction and returning the foot into the neutral position that it should be in and then splinting in that position is is the best course of action there are occasions if it's impacted where you may need to slightly exaggerate the injury Uh, so for example if the foot has kind of gone laterally you may need to provide a little bit more lateral movement so you kind of take the injury a little bit further obviously you have to be careful with that a little bit further just to disimpact it before you apply your traction but most of my experiences of these is that they are so unstable that you can just provide gentle traction and then they will naturally kind of slide back into you know a normal alignment where they then need to be splinted that's that's interesting i've always worked on the basis that without a fairly hefty amount of analgesia i i don't think it's um necessarily the right thing to do to 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 put people through um what am i trying to say if if you've got the option of splinting and getting them to a place where they can have proper analgesia and have that fracture reduced i think that from a humanitarian point of view that is potentially the right way to go but really it comes down to how desperately in need that that limb is isn't it i don't think we should be putting ourselves in the position of reducing every fracture that that might need it but um you know, if you've got a fracture that's got what they call critical skin or you are a long way from hospital or, you know, there is a reduced circulation, uh, I think we have to have a fairly pragmatic approach to the amount of pain relief that we can give. And this is why I think it's so important to get those critical care resources and uh, enhanced skills to the scene as as early as possible because that just increases your options when it comes to that decision to reduce or not. Fully agree with you there. Um, yeah, gel calc is very like, oh, if it's um, kind of really deformed, reduce it. Um, if it's mildly deformed, leave it kind of as it is and there's no neurovascular compromise. What equates at which kind of point is is severely deformed and minimally deformed, I suppose, is clinical judgment. But yeah, I would say gold standard would be critical care or extended care that have some sort of procedural sedation. There's a lot of evidence around Penthrox. So if your if your service does carry Penthrox, and I have just reduced ankles purely with Penthrox alone, because Penthrox is an exceptionally good analgesia for reductions, and it has been proven that shoulders, ankles, and colleagues fracture reductions can all be done just on Penthrox alone. I've had some good experience with that, but then I've also had patients that that wasn't enough, and they have needed to go on to have kind of other IV sedation. So yeah, I think it kind of depends on your patient and what you you can give them, you know, combinations of things. If it's that unstable, it's going to be relatively quick to pull it back in place. Um, It's going to be painful. 
we then can balance up the thing of is it going to be more comfortable when it's back in neutral alignment and splinted as you said splinting itself is a form of analgesia so i think we've got to think about all of these individual components and treat it on an individual basis i, I think you are 100 percent right alex it's not a case of all of them should be done i think the ones that definitely need to be done are prolonged length to hospital any neurovascular compromise and anything that's critical skin and, and, and those are the ones I think are really important. So obviously I've mentioned it and you mentioned it before, critical skin. Alex, do you just want to define what critical skin is? If you imagine skin that's under pressure and had all of the all of the blood essentially squeezed out of it. Now, if you think about, you know, a fracture that is grossly deformed and is pulling the skin very tightly, um, that's going to increase the pressure within the cells in the skin and, and it, the circulation is just not going to be able to permeate that skin, therefore creating the potential for necrosis of the cells and all sorts of problems. So that's my understanding is that it's it's a limb that is deformed to the point where the skin is under so much pressure that um you know in a in a caucasian person it would appear very pale and white it's skin that's at risk of damage from hypoxia and and lack of circulation yeah i think that's exactly right it's basically um you know where there is the skin's under so much tension that it is at risk of becoming an open fracture and um, that it has neurovascular compromise because the skin is under so much pressure. If you decide that you are going to have a go at reducing, I, I think another thing to, to always be aware of is the amount of time that you're spending trying to do that procedure. Aim for as as close to normal anatomical alignment as you can get and just be aware that, you know, by all means have a go at reducing something if you think it needs it, but you don't want to be spending half an hour trying to reduce a fracture, putting the patient through uh, a whole lot of additional trauma when you know it it may be more prudent to transport so that's reduction very briefly then Simon before we go on to talk more about less dramatic ankle injuries shall we just have a very quick chat about open fractures we need to think about the the injuries that might be associated with this so obviously we've already kind of talked about neurovascular compromise in a closed injury in an open injury we normally have more significant injury there's a risk of bleeding which needs to be controlled as per kind of normal hemorrhage control processes that we do uh, if that's in existence but the, i suppose the big thing we need to think about is is contamination of the wound any wound that is over a fracture that you cannot see the base of must be treated as an open fracture until proven otherwise it is possible that bone can come through and then go back internally on its own accord so i think if you cannot visualize the base of a wound and there is a, a an obvious injury and fracture underneath it's a, it should be treated as an open fracture until proven otherwise that's obviously one end of the spectrum where you get small wounds but obviously we also know that you can get significant wounds and those wounds as i said have a high risk of contamination so we need to think about managing that. Now, when I first started in pre-hospital care, I used to irrigate any kind of debris out of those wounds, but that's kind of not not something we should be doing anymore. It's not kind of evidence-based. Alex, do you want to talk a bit more about that and why we don't irrigate wounds? So the basis of it, as you say, there's not really a huge amount of evidence to support irrigation, certainly not in the pre-hospital context compared to a proper in-hospital surgical washout in theatres. So if you have a patient who has a grossly contaminated fracture 
the example that's often given is of farmers that have got all sorts of farmyard muck or or you know dirt in in that fracture then we can consider trying to remove that with sterile saline but the boast guidance the british orthopedic guidance is clear that we should have minimal handling of these wounds to minimize infection so if we can take imagery of the wounds to minimize repeat disturbance that's also helpful but with regards to washouts outside of the formal theater environment there's minimal benefit unless they're really grossly contaminated the patient's also going to require antibiotics and i believe that most services these days are or should be carrying comoxiclav and early administration of antibiotics is probably one of the most important things we can do for an open fracture alongside analgesia and splintage a bit like txa this is very much a drug that we should be giving in the pre-hospital stage for maximal benefit. The Bose guidance states that these patients should receive antibiotics within the first hour. And that's because we know from various studies that delays in antibiotics are associated with markedly increased risk of infection. And a study in 2015, I think by Lack et al., looked at 137 Gustillo Anderson grade 3 open fractures, basically open fractures with wounds greater than 10 centimetre or with gross contamination, so very high infection risk. And they found that no infections were recorded at the 90-day mark if antibiotics were given within 66 minutes of injury, but that 17% of those receiving antibiotics after 66 minutes developed an infection. So this probably isn't something that we need to be doing before all the other important stuff like splinting and analgesia or certainly not in place of those things, but very much something that we need to be thinking about alongside the other pre-hospital packaging and preparation for transport to hospital. And it's certainly something that we should definitely be doing pre-hospitally for these patients. So then our package of care for an open fracture should be reduction of this neurovascular compromise, hemorrhage control if that exists. We probably want to cover it with a saline-soaked sterile dressing. Obviously, analgesia, as we discussed, splint, and then provide intravenous broad-spectrum antibiotics, which the evidence base shows does make a difference giving it pre-hospitally rather than arrival in ED. Perfect. Right, let's move away from the more dramatic side of ankle fractures and talk more about sort of muscular skeletal injuries. So w- when when we're talking about a sprain, a sprain is a tear in a ligament, but it's a term that covers a, a pretty huge range of injury from a minor sort of partial tear up to what can be a permanently disabling injury. Sprains are graded one to three. It's not really possible or relevant in terms of pre-hospitalist treatment to to grade them. I think a really important point to cover is that in the acute phase of injury, special tests to test different ligaments really are not possible and probably not really appropriate either in the sense that this injury has just happened and the patient is going to have probably some swelling developing or already present they're going to be in significant amounts of pain Um, and the last thing we need to be doing is is moving their foot around and pulling on different bits to try and figure out which which ligament it is that's that's damaged there are an estimated 
one million ankle sprains uh, reported per year in the UK. And as with a lot of statistics, that is just looking at ankle sprains that are reported. So the actual incidence is, is almost certainly going to be significantly higher than that. But a study by Bridgman et al. in 2003 concluded that around 42,000 uh, severe sprains presented uh, to their study within within a year. Uh, so they are pretty common. Um, they seem to be more common in younger age groups, particularly teens, for, for all sorts of reasons. They're, they're developing, they're growing, they're also more likely to be involved in, in high energy sports and that sort of thing where, where these type of injuries are common. And they appear to be marginally more common in in females. And that comes from a study by Doherty uh, et al. in 2014. So why why is all that important? Why am I sort of teaching you what a sprain is when, when you know, I think most people really know what a sprain is. But the reason it's important and the reason we're talking about it in this podcast is because we need something to to help us identify what is a sprain and what is potentially a fracture. So Simon, do you want to talk to us a bit about what we're going to be looking for when we're examining an injury to the ankle? So when we're doing our physical examination, then we're going to use a look, feel, move approach. So this is pretty self-explanatory and it's kind of the bog standard for all musculoskeletal examinations. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, I've kind of chosen just to focus on the elements that would be relevant to a minor injury as opposed to other forms of um, musculoskeletal conditions because, you know, we could be here all day otherwise. But I think a key feature of any good um, MSK examination is that you must examine the joint above and the joint below. And the ankle injury is a prime example of why this is really important. So... When we think about uh, the ankle joint, we need to look at the knee joint and we need to look at the foot. And the reason we do that is because a simple um, inversion injury, which is the most common form of injury uh, that gives us an ankle sprain or sometimes fracture, can cause an injury to not just the ankle, but to the head of the fibula, which is obviously just below the knee and would come up under our knee exam and also could cause an avulsion fracture off the fifth metatarsal, which would be part of our foot exam. So it's a great example as to why looking above and below the injury site is absolutely essential. Don't be that person that misses those injuries um, and discharges someone with a sprain or a fracture um, in one place and has missed the one in the, the, the has missed the uh, other fracture in the other location because they didn't examine it. And when we're talking about ankles, Simon, you just used the term inversion there. Is it worth running through very quickly just the difference between in inversion and aversion? Yeah, that's a good point, Alex. So you have um, inversion, eversion injuries. Now, eversion injuries are much rarer. That is when um, you have kind of medial damage to the ankle, so kind of the inside of the ankle joint, whereas inversion injuries make up 80 to 85% of all ankle injuries, which is the classic plantar flexion and roll. So, you know, you kind of put your foot down and it gives and your kind of foot, you, you roll outwards and, and over and fall. So that's that's the most common injury. Be worried about kind of medial injuries that there's potentially a, a higher mechanism that's caused it. But yeah, inversion is the most common. Yeah, so it can be a bit confusing, can't it? 
eversion injuries where the foot rolls laterally to sort of to the outside of the body and the ankle rolls medially or inwards so the foot has everted they're normally associated with higher mechanism of injury aren't they and if you think about the anatomy on that medial aspect of the ankle you've got the strong thick tibia so there's a lot of resistance and support and strength there Whereas those inversion injuries where the foot inverts and rolls medially and the ankle goes outwards, because that's the the motion that the joint most naturally follows, there's the thinner, weaker fibula there for support. And so you most commonly cause damage to the ATFL or the anterior talofibular ligament on that lateral malleolus. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the medial uh, joint is made up of the deltoid ligaments. There's multiple ligaments there. And the outside is made up of, or your lateral side is made up of three ligaments. So your ATFL that you've kind of just said, that's the most common one that goes. And then you have your CTFL, which is the next one that goes. And then rarely your PTFL that, that, that goes. And quite often they go in that order. So you'll find that usually, it's not impossible, but usually... Uh, you'll get ATFL, then CTFL, then PTFL. So if you've got a PTFL, you'll normally have the other two as well. The more damage there is, the more that have, have torn or gone, the more, as you said earlier, the higher grade of sprain that's going to be and, and how much kind of instability the joint has. And going back to what you were saying earlier about uh, examining above and below, a really good example of that is something which I know you wanted to talk about a little bit, um, high ankle and tibiofibular syndesmosis injury. And for people who may not be familiar with the term, a syndesmosis is the joint between two bones. It's a a sort of fibrous joint between two bones and the, the the tibia and the fibula are a really good example of this. Obviously, the fibula, being quite a thin bone, is joined by a sort of fibrous membrane to the tibia. And when you do have a sudden sort of external rotation of the ankle, you can actually get a, a traumatic injury there, can't you, uh, Simon? So what, what would we be kind of looking for with that? So so you've gone to someone who has who has rolled their ankle and they have externally rotated the ankle and so so we're looking above the ankle what are we kind of looking for so that bit kind of comes into when we kind of palpate down down the leg so if we start from the beginning let's let's look so what we're looking for is bruising which in a really acute injury in the kind of immediate minutes to first hour afterwards we may not notice we're looking for wounds to see, well, could this be an open fracture? Is there kind of other surface wounds over the top? We're looking for erythema and redness, which may show one inflammation of, of the injury, but also is this something else? Could this be, you know, an infection? Obviously, I know we said we weren't going to talk too much about other conditions, but it's worth keeping in the, in the back of your mind. We're going to look for swelling. These injuries can cause significant swelling and with it, uh, pain. But what we kind of need to be wary of is the fact that just because something's significantly swollen doesn't make it more likely to be a fracture over a ligament injury and just because there's minimal swelling doesn't mean it's likely to be a ligament injury more than a fracture so i've seen fractures with minimal swelling i've seen ligament injuries with significant swelling just document it but be wary that it's not kind of that uh, diagnostic and then we need to look for deformity, which we kind of already alluded to at the top. And I think that's going to then lead us into our, our kind of higher mechanism deformed ankle injury bit we've already discussed. 
after we've done our look, we're going to do our feel. So this is when we're going to palpate kind of the bones and structures of our knee, ankle and foot. So I always start off, as I said, at the knee. We're going to palpate the head of fibula and the tibial plateau. We're going to come down the shaft of both bones and see if there's any tenderness down the shafts of, of the bones. And then Back to your original question there, Alex, about the uh, syndesmosis and high ankle injuries. We'll, we probably want to give them a little bit of a, of a squeeze about the distal third above the ankle. Just give it a bit of a squeeze there because a syndesmosis injury will cause pain when you compress the tibia and fibula together in that distal third. So that kind of answers that question. Are you happy with that answer, Alex? That's how we kind of diagnose those types of injuries. I, th- I think an important point to make with that, specifically with the with the syndesmosis injury, is that as with a lot of these things, they are indicators. My understanding of that specific injury is that it can only really be diagnosed following uh, following sort of X ray. But I, I just think it's a really good example of why we have to sort of look joint joint to joint. You know, not not just focus. Don't don't just get focused on on what the patient says has happened. You know, what I've gone over on my ankle, therefore it is an ankle injury you know because there could be other other injuries other injuries involved such as an achilles tendon rupture if the patient has they've heard a popping or a snapping at the time of the injury but they but they're still walking around now it's very easy to say well if you're still walking around then there's no there's no injury there but an an achilles tendon rupture depending how bad it is they they're likely to still be able to walk but they're not going to be able to do the things that they can normally do they're not necessarily going to have a normal gait they're not going to be able to to push off the the injured leg for example they're not going to be able to stand on their toes in that leg those those movements that involve the achilles tendon but we've just got to be very careful to to go well they went over on their ankle the ankle looks fine everything's everything's okay yeah and achilles tendon injuries are really important not to miss it's a great thing to raise alex that that subtle um step in the you know the the achilles tendon itself as you palpate around the back of the lower calf coming into the the heel don't miss it because they are significant injuries think about patients that are runners and jumpers especially if you do event work Think about patients that have recently been on antibiotics such as ciprofloxacin because that can cause a tendonitis and that tendonitis in itself can cause an Achilles tendon rupture and with relatively low mechanism of injury. So just just keep those things in the, in the back of your head because you don't want to miss an, an Achilles tendon rupture because they, they, need, they need an assessment in, in hospital. Moving down as we get to kind of like the ankle joint obviously the ankle joint is made up of the distal ends of the tib and fib and that is what makes our malleoli so we have a lateral malleoli which is the distal end of the fib and we have a medial malleoli which is the distal end of the tibia so we're going to palpate around those and these are effectively the bony prominences of our ankle joint and it's really important that we palpate these properly because we will talk later on about the clinical decision rules that help us decide when to x-ray and when to not. But this is the bit that I see a lot of people get wrong. Malleolar pain, especially anterior malleolar pain, is much more likely to be a soft tissue ligamentous injury. You know, We've already mentioned your ATFL, which kind of sits around that region. 
So pain and tenderness and swelling there is much more likely to be ligamentous, whereas the posterior tip of the malleoli is much more likely to be a bony injury. So we need to kind of define where we're palpating over our malleolar region. Carrying on down, we're going to continue into our foot exam, palpate our main cuneiform bones, our navicular. We're going to palpate our metatarsal, specifically the base of the fifth metatarsal, because as I said, inversion injuries can cause a avulsion fracture of that location. And that kind of completes our palpation, as well as just generally feeling for the warmth you would get associated with inflammation and swelling. So that's look and feel. Now we're going to move. So move is a an area where we might want to do this at this point. We might want to do it after we image the foot. And that's kind of a bit of clinical judgment. That depends on kind of the stability of the ankle. And the movements we want to look at are passive, where we move the ankle in various positions. That's going to be plantar flexion, dorsiflexion and gentle inversion and eversion to see where we can localize pain. We want to try and do active where the patient moves their foot in those planes. And then the last thing we want to do is against resistance. Now, obviously, it depends whether we are querying a fracture or whether we think this is likely a soft tissue injury as to how much of those movements and how aggressively of those movements we're going to do, which brings us quite nicely into differentiating between a fracture and a sprain, which Alex, you're going to talk to us about. Absolutely. And and in that acute phase of injury, what's been found is that we need some sort of way of rapidly ruling out the need for imaging. You know, in, in modern healthcare, we have to think about the cost of things and, and x-rays are costly and they, they are time consuming, you know, especially in, in the NHS as it is at the moment. There is a lot of pressure around times and waiting times and getting people through these through these imaging processes. And in other countries, you also have to consider the cost of the patient in, in a system where patients are are paying directly for their care, then obviously they're going to want to reduce the amount of, of, of tests that they are subject to. Another aspect really is it is that that they do carry a tiny health risk, you know, with, with, with x-rays. Although on that point, I think it's worth pointing out, we, we talk a lot about reducing the amount of of x-ray and i think if you're talking about ct or or major exposure procedures then that is that is very relevant in in the context of an ankle x-ray you're talking about 0.01 millisieverts per exposure and background radiation is estimated to be around three millisieverts a year so whilst it's relevant and something to consider the actual amount of radiation an ankle x-ray is almost insubstantial but we do have to justify every dose of radiation. Yeah, I think we were both we were both quite shocked by that, weren't we? Like, I think it was something like ninety million people would need to be irradiated with an ankle injury, or twenty-one year olds would need to be irradiated with an ankle injury before one possible case of cancer was caused by it. It was it was exceptionally idiotic number, so the risk is really low. Yeah, I mean, the unstable potassium-40 isotope in a banana can emit 0.1 millisievert. So 
an ankle x-ray is less radiation than your standard issue banana <laughs> so you know not that that's really relevant i just i just think that's an interesting uh, i just think that's an interesting point but but, but but might be relevant if you know if you are requesting x-rays or, or referring these people for x-rays and maybe a pregnant patient that's worried about radiation exposure you know you can really make them feel better by explaining these types of things to them. yeah or if you're a person who eats a lot of uh, eats a lot of bananas eats a lot of bananas yeah, yeah. we're more um, about the hyperkalemia to be honest yeah but, um, yeah <laughs> well it's the potassium it's the potassium 40 <laughs> isotope that's radioactive so yeah that's definitely relevant um okay so so moving on from bananas then so yeah th- th- this need to rapidly rule out the the requirement for imaging is is where the ottawa ankle rules came from and most people um who are listening to the podcast are probably somewhat familiar with the ottawa ankle rules but they're from a study uh done in i believe i'm right in saying 1992 by steel et al which was based on on a hospital in Ottawa in Canada, hence the name. And pooled results of systematic reviews of the Ottawa ankle rules have shown that the Ottawa ankle rules are around 97.6% sensitive with a median specificity of 31.5. And that's that means that they are very useful because they are less likely to give false negatives. So if if you have a patient who who has a positive uh, who, who is Ottawa ankle positive, they are someone who is extremely likely to need an ankle X-ray, and I think that's that is a that is a very key point to make here with the Ottawa ankle rules. This is an X-ray and imaging decision tool. This is not an indicator of whether the patient absolutely positively has a fracture. If a patient is Ottawa positive, they require an X-ray the tool itself is not designed to differentiate fracture or no fracture which is which is why and the reason they say that is because it because it does have that um it's very sensitive but it's got the um the sort of mid-range specificity so it's a, it's a really really good proven tool for the need for an ankle image but it will not definitively prove that there is a um that there is a fracture in that ankle so I'll run very quickly then through the Ottawa ankle rules. And I think an interesting point about the Ottawa ankle rules is that they are called the ankle rules, but actually they give us two sets of rules. They give us a set of rules to determine if an ankle image is required and a set of rules to determine if a foot image is required. So looking at ankles, since that's our sort of primary focus, an ankle x-ray series is required only if there is pain in the malleolar zone plus bony tenderness at the posterior edge or tip of the lateral malleolus and thinking back to what Simon was talking about earlier the anterior edge of the malleolus is more likely to be a soft tissue injury if there is tenderness on palpation at the posterior edge or tip of the lateral malleolus or the posterior edge or tip of the medial malleolus so either side, essentially, a simpler way of saying it, perhaps, either side, if there is if there is pain on palpation at the back of the malleolus plus pain, then that is an indicator for a series uh, of ankle x-rays. And or an inability to weight bear both immediately and for f- four or more steps within the sort of emergency setting. So whether that be in an emergency department or or wherever the patient happens to be. So if they're not able to weight bear, they have pain in the malleolar zone plus tenderness on palpation of the posterior edge of the malleolus. That is an indicator for an ankle x-ray. If the patient has pain in the midfoot zone 
and they have bony tenderness at the uh, the base of the fifth metatarsal. And think you know, and Simon mentioned that earlier when we were talking about evulsion injuries. So if there's pain at the base of the fifth metatarsal on the lateral side, or they have bony tenderness over the navicular, sort of around the midfoot zone on the medial side, plus an inability to weight bear either immediately or following on in the emergency setting then that's an indicator for a foot x-ray so all summed up it's a palpation of the the posterior aspects of the malleolus both lateral and medial it's palpation of essentially the midfoot zone but looking specifically at the base of the fifth metatarsal and the navicular if there is pain in those zones or inability to walk three or more steps then that is an indicator that the patient is otter ankle positive absolutely and obviously as part of that posterior tip of the malleolus we also want to make sure that we assess about five centimeters above that as well so if there's any tenderness on the posterior tips of the lateral or medial malleolus or five centimeters above either one that is also uh, a positive finding that would would make us auto a positive so from my experience the biggest trigger for the ottawa rules is the inability to weight bear and it's kind of a, a bit of a, an ongoing joke around probably mius and eds that um, we do something called the therapeutic x-ray where a patient will say they can't weight bear triggering their ottawa positive and then we x-ray them reassure them there's no fracture and then they walk out of the ed and, and i think this is is common you know it's kind of like a placebo effect isn't it you're worried there's fractured because there's significant swelling there's significant pain it must be something serious and you know people assume that a break is more serious than a ligament injury would actually we know that a nasty ligament injury that is unstable can be can, can actually require significant more input from orthopedics than than some simple breaks so I think it's just kind of perspective, but we do need to expect that. And I think that is the most common reason why we end up X-raying people is because that kind of inability to wait there. We need to just explore the common errors a little bit around the auto ankle rules. So as I said, the inability to wait there. I think some people sometimes are a little bit, oh, they they can just touch their foot to the floor therefore they can weight bear i would say this needs to be a pretty decent weight but you can you can have a little hobble but i think you you do need to be putting a decent amount of weight through those steps and you need to be actually stepping forward with full body weight kind of on to the foot how about so again my experience pre hospital care is people uh, roll their ankle they've walked home on it they finished their last couple of minutes of their sports match they've gone home on it it's been a bit sore they've iced it they've gone to bed they wake up the next morning then they can't wait bear these ones are kind of tricky because the pain the next morning is going to be more severe because we know that that inflammation and pain and everything gets worse so what i would tend to try and do at this point is maybe do a trial of analgesia so give them some pain relief and then review can they then wait bear again was it just the fact that they haven't got any analgesia in them if they still can't then i would say then Obviously, that triggers the Ottawa positive, but if they can weight bear, then obviously that will be more likely to be a sprain. So, do patients who are Ottawa positive need to be conveyed in an ambulance? Ah, oh, so this is a great question, isn't it? So, I've I've had some crewmates that have looked at me really, really strangely when I've gone out and. I mean, we, we. I worked in a in a seaside town, and we go down to the beach quite a lot for for minor injuries. We can call down by lifeguards and various people. 
And I'd rock up and examine someone's ankle. Yes, it's swollen. Yes, it's extremely painful. Yes, they can't wait there. They have tenderness, blah, blah, blah. And I tell them, yes, you might have fractured your ankle. Here's some analgesia. Now get yourself to A&E. I, I personally think if it's not requiring reduction, splintage, and all those things, and the person is relatively mobile uh, in terms of that they can get into cars and family and friends and stuff, and they have transport options, we should be utilizing them. And also not just about the transport that they don't have to go in by ambulance, the fact that they also don't need to go to an emergency department. They could go to a minor injury unit if you have one locally. So I think it's really important that we document the examination thoroughly. We tell them that they could have a fracture and that they do need an x-ray, give them analgesia, but we don't have to convey them. Obviously, we've given them our advice. Now, if they can't get to hospital any other way, then that's a social reason, isn't it? We might have to help them. But I think that um, freeing up resources, not queuing outside A&E for four hours with an ankle injury would be a good thing. So yeah, I am a strong advocate for self-conveyance, even if I turn up on an ambulance. You know, just because you've got an ambulance doesn't mean you have to convey a patient that needs to go to A&E. No, I completely agree. And don't be afraid to write a letter as well you know this is something that um i know we we're largely we're using electronic systems now but some vehicles have printers and all sorts of things you know and there's nothing wrong with the old-fashioned uh writing of a of a sort of referral letter to help the process along when when they get to wherever it is they're going to go and have an image there are i think cases where that's not going to be appropriate and you've already gone through some of those but for example a patient who has got a neurological deficit so yeah, it's a great point, Alex, about the times when it's not appropriate to uh, use these rules to discharge people. And obviously, altered neurology is, is one of those. So that could be uh, an intoxicated patient that can't tell you about their levels of pain accurately, but it could be a much more localized neurology. So someone, for example, with peripheral vascular disease or diabetic neuropathy who may not be able to detect the sensation and the pain where you are palpating in certain places. So yeah, it's really important that we apply these rules properly. Once we've established our Ottawa assessment, we then need to do the final part of our examination, which is document the neurovascular status. Now, we kind of just alluded to that obviously some patients with their past medical history may not have intact sensation. However, it's really important that we do actually do a neurovascular status examination as the final part of our MSK assessment on this ankle injury. And this is actually one of the areas in minor injury care that probably has the most litigation around it when people fail to document and do this assessment. So to assess neurovascular status is exactly what it says on the tin. We're looking at neurology and we're looking at vascular. The neurology component of that is made up of function and sensation. Now, function is going to be compromised potentially because we have swelling, we have pain that's fine. We just need to document that. So I always document that as, as above because we've already tested the function as part of the look-feel move. I then 
document sensation. Now, to do this properly, you're supposed to do this to light touch and to pinprick and you know temperature sensations. Now, I, I don't do that in my practice. I do just do gross light touch. So, But at the minimum, you want to be documenting that the patient has intact distal light touch to the, the injury site. And then we come on to the vascular component. Now, the vascular component is just evidencing that there isn't any vascular compromise. So we do that by saying that the foot and distal to the injury is warm, that it has a good pulse, so like in this case, a pedal pulse, and that there is good capillary refill time when we compare it to the opposite side as, as a comparator. It's really important that that neurovascular status is documented in your clinical notes. And that kind of concludes our examination of the ankle so we now know that we've got a patient who has a minor injury who is a sprained because we suspect that they are ottawa negative and they don't necessarily need an x-ray so these patients are suitable for discharge at scene so how are we going to manage these patients obviously analgesia is going to be really important the patient is almost certainly going to be able to take some paracetamol how do we feel about NSAIDs because Josh Simon I just called you Josh there <laughs> he's not even here and I've called you the wrong name thanks Sorry. Yeah, um, thanks. <laughs> uh, Simon you um, were, were talking to me about this and you said that you've there's kind of evidence either way for for NSAIDs in a, in a situation like this yeah, so I currently advise people not to use NSAIDs for the first kind of 72 hours after they have an acute ankle injury, be that a fracture or a sprain. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What, what, what's, what's the kind of, what's the rationale for that? So it's, it's a great question. So I was taught on when I did uh, my uh, minor injuries unit at Masters that the reason is because obviously the properties of, of how NSAIDs work is it is an anti-inflammatory. But what we want in the short-term phase is we want some of those inflammatory properties migrating to the area because it actually helps with healing. And if you give NSAIDs in the acute stage, then that actually worsens healing in the long run. Now, I never like practicing with I was just told this, as you know, so I did try and do some research on it. And I've basically found multiple evidence uh, and meter analysis that supports the argument either way, that NSAIDs are fine and they help, or NSAIDs can delay healing. So being completely honest with you, I can't really give an answer. I think people sit on either side of the fence with this, and it depends on how you feel about it and what evidence you've looked at. I will probably in that line continue to practice how I have been practicing and telling people to avoid NSAIDs unless the pain is so severe they can't manage it with paracetamol alone, ideally for the first kind of 72 hours. But do I have a concrete evidence base that's, you know, 100% to back that up? No, I don't. Okay, so once we've decided which medicines we want the patient to take or we've given them some advice on analgesia beyond that really it, it's just a case of sort of almost first aid advice isn't it we've, we've got the the acronym price so protect ask the patient to protect the injury by by reducing the amount of activity on it not doing certain activities i mean to me that seems a bit like rest but i i suppose protect is is perhaps a just a, a better way of of saying it so I've always considered protect to be like protect it from further injury. So you don't want to be, try not to be rolling your ankle again, 
try not to be knocking what, it against what, things, what, things what like helpful that. I, advice I, yeah i know now don't, now don't <laughs> just, do it again yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah. it just pr- it price just seems if you're resting yeah. it I, I don't know but 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 that but that's what the acronym yeah. is it's protect rest yeah. ice and I, I think we need to know that this has been around for for for, yeah. for a long time and you know even rest itself actually yes we do want to rest it in the kind of first 24 to 40 hours but then actual continued rest is bad for healing we want to be gently mobilizing and gently loading these ligamentous injuries so there, there's lots to this and lots that's changing in minor injury care and actually maybe these things are a little bit dated but we still kind of use them so it's and 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 while while we're while we're ripping this uh beloved aspect of uh of minor injury care to pieces another aspect the next the next letter is c which is compression and my understanding simon based on what you were telling me is that that is also no longer really that recommended unless it's done by a physio yeah, I completely agree with that. I don't strap injuries anymore. One, because I'm not trained to do that. It does need special strapping. And two, because actually just wrapping a crepe bandage around an injury doesn't actually provide any support. So yeah, I think that's something that's kind of gone. The whole rest element we just said needs to be gen- gentle mobilization is good. But ideally, a lot of the stuff should be supervised, as you quite rightly said, Alex, by a physio. So if you've got a young person who is into sport especially i mean if they're an athlete definitely get them a, a physio referral a lot of these patients will have physios privately within clubs and organizations that they train for if they're the kind of semi-professional or professional athletes so and i would definitely get anything that's a minor injury followed up by their teams it's is really important obviously that we get the rehabilitation of these injuries correct so whilst we're providing an immediate first aid advice using this kind of mnemonic i think it's important that they have follow-up so stop yourself from getting any further injuries rest it in the first little bit but then gently start to mobilize get some supervised rehabilitation from a physio compression i think we both basically agreed is is useless unless unless done unless done properly yeah advice. yeah absolutely. not 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 useless in general yeah. but yeah it should it should all just be done properly and, and, and ice just your standard first 72 hours not directly on the skin make sure you tell patients that and then kind of every two to three hours maybe for a maximum of 20 minutes and those sorts of things should help and then elevation for part of the rest and to decrease swelling is the advice to to give and don't be afraid to um you know to get to give advice to, to go and get physio particularly if you're if you're looking at something that is quite a quite a bad ligamentous injury or, or, or something along the lines of an achilles tendon rupture you know that that absolutely for certain needs needs physio input I think you're right. And I think the other good thing about physio follow-up as well, or going to a GP to start that process, is as we said earlier, we have different grades of sprain. Now, in the acute phase, the reason we haven't done a lot of talk today, Alex, in our kind of assessment about special tests is that my personal feeling on these is that they're a little bit useless in the acute phase. You know, if I grab your ankle and try and um, do a draw test to see how much your ligament laxity you have one you're going to splint that with muscles and the swelling that's around because you're in in pain in an acute phase inflammation and also you're going to be in agony and you're not going to like me and you're going to kind of resist that test whereas if we let the acute phase settle a week or so down the line when pain and swelling has gone down then we can have a real expert assessment by a physiotherapist or someone who is into sports injuries 
and those types of musculoskeletal injuries about assessing the true laxity and the true stability of the joint and what action needs to happen from then on. So yeah, I think sometimes in the in the time we're going to see the patient, it's a less important to do these sorts of things and just basic stuff is all that's needed. And then as always, the last thing we want to do is provide worsening advice. So if we are going to discharge a patient without any imaging because they're auto negative, have good communication with the patient about if things do change, then they can obviously self-present to an ED or self-present to an MIU and give them those options. And then the things that they need to look out for would be complications of an injury, like a compartment syndrome. So if there is significantly increasing pain, we know that over the next kind of 24 to 48 hours, pain may slightly increase. But obviously, if there's pain that's out of proportion, it goes pale, they have a cold limb or it goes like blue or discolored, obviously outside of the bruising area. And they have concerns about that this actually is getting worse because of swelling. Then obviously make sure that you uh, advise them of those red flags and that they then seek emergency help. Okay, so let's summarize. Ankle injuries can present to us on a spectrum from the minor soft tissue injury to the open fracture dislocation. For those injuries in the latter category, we need to consider the mechanism of injury involved and what other injuries could be occult. Don't just get distracted by the graphic wound. Open fractures need their pain managed appropriately. A fracture that's deformed with neurovascular compromise should be realigned as soon as possible to prevent tissue necrosis. They need to be well splinted to protect from further injury and to help manage pain. And open fractures should receive prophylactic antibiotics as soon as possible from us. But don't forget to check for a penicillin allergy. Ankle injuries that are less severe need a bit more detailed assessment. Assess joints using a look, feel, move approach and assess the joints immediately above and below the injury. Just because something is very swollen doesn't mean it's more likely to be a fracture. Likewise, minimal swelling doesn't make it less likely. The Ottawa Ankle Rules are an imaging decision tool, not a tool to confirm the presence or absence of a fracture. Patients that are Ottawa positive likely need an x-ray to exclude fracture. However, this doesn't mean that they need to go by ambulance and consideration should be given for self-transport. Depending on the situation and the presentation in front of you and the wishes of the patient, it may be reasonable to get them reassessed at a later time. If we suspect a sprain or other soft tissue injury, first aid advice and management is key here along with good analgesia. Though it may be useful to avoid NSAIDs, the evidence isn't clear cut. Take a look at our references to help you decide. Protecting the injury is key, so give advice to avoid further damage. Resting the injury to a degree is important, but we should advise gentle motion in the following days to aid recovery. Ice can be helpful to limit pain in the first 72 hours, but advise no more than 20 minutes of icing every three hours or so. Compression should only be done by a trained individual, usually a physiotherapist. And elevation can be useful to limit swelling and ease discomfort. Don't forget to refer or get followed up bad soft tissue injuries who should be followed up with a physio or minor injury specialist. That's all for this month. We hope this has been a useful revision of the topic. And as always, the reference materials we've used can be found on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk. And just before we let you go, 
we need you to do something for us. If you like this kind of free, open access education material, please help us to keep making it by spreading the word. We can't tell you how much help it is when people share our CBD with other people. So please give us a share on Twitter. Tell people what your favourite episode is. And if you really want to help, give us a review on iTunes or Spotify. It all goes a really long way to helping us grow and to make more educational content for everyone. Thanks for listening and join us again next month.